Are you interested in vintage clothing, secondhand shopping, the reselling community, history, or all of the above? Then this is the show for you. My name is Rebecca, and I'm here to talk to you about other people's things. I'm here not only to discuss the material aspect of clothing, but our relationship as a society to other people's things and how we go about obtaining them, selling them, finding them, and enjoying them. Thanks for tuning in. everyone and welcome to another episode of Other People's Things. I'm Rebecca, your host, and today I'm here with my friend Katie. Do you want to say hello, Katie? Hi, everyone. <laughs> and and really quick, I just want to thank you all for joining us today for this episode. And I'm just going to have Katie tell you a little bit about who she is and what she does to start us off. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Katie, and I am a living historian. I'm also an attorney editor in my day job, and I am a vintage collector of over 10 years now. So I've been doing this for quite a while, uh, and it's really worked hand in hand with my passion as a living historian. And also, too, sort of on the side, um, I am a historic trolley operator, and it's not ding, those... Ding. <laughs> it's not those those buses that you see sort of driving around town. This is this is actually the um, on the line historic trolleys. So it's really a fun sort of gig. Um, volunteering with them has been a great sort of um, addition to what I always do, anyways, which is it, research history, um, especially local history. So yeah, so it's it's been a really fun thing to do, and so of course living history has been as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And it seems like you really have your hand in all sorts of different aspects and elements of reenacting and just anything that has to do with history, which kind of, it comes with, I feel like it, it kind of just comes with the interest. If you start, you slowly start branching out once you do have that, um, that interest sparked. Yeah. It's really it's really fun what you can discover and what you realize that you're into because it took me a long time to kind of figure out um, my interest in like World War II, for instance. It started with fashion and then it kind of just um, escalated from there. And yeah. <clears throat> and that's, I mean, for me, uh, it's really strange because it was kind of a... A, a, a journey to get to here. Um, I actually first started out in reenacting, doing Civil War reenacting, to be honest. Um, and so I did that with our historic fort for a bit, uh, went to Gettysburg, ended up meeting my husband um, at the 150th of Gettysburg. And uh, from there, we ended up branching out into World War II, just because my husband is also very passionate about World War II. And I was, you know, intrigued by that. And also, too, from my own stories, from my own family, um, my 
grandpa was part of the 101st Airborne. My other grandpa was part of the 9th Air Force. Um, so my, my grandma was a whack. <laughs> so, oh. so there's, there's so much family history too, that goes into this. Um, and I think that's a lot of the reason why I ended up also, uh, working with the trolley too, because the, the woman who babysat me years ago, um, talked about the trolleys all the time. That it was something that I grew up hearing about. I grew up knowing, um, so f when I when I figured out that I could actually go and operate one, <laughs> of, of course I jumped at the chance. Sounds like the seed was planted at an early age. Very and early. Look at how it has grown. I love hearing stories like that. Do you still have any of your grandma's wax stuff? No, unfortunately, that was something that she rarely talked about. Um, and she died really too young for me to, for in my life, for any sort of real conversation to happen. Um, but it was interesting because that was something that both her and my grandpa, who was part of the 101st Airborne, sort of kept to the to, to themselves. And the only things that I have from my grandpa, even about his time over in the ETO, is a couple of his his ribbons his ribbon bars um a postcard from the queen mary where he said that he comes he came back on the queen mary in 1946 um and and just kind of a couple incidentals it's actually in my desk drawer here but <laughs> so it was something he didn't talk about till later on in life and I think that was one of the things that started to really connect us towards the end of his life too because I would ask him about all of the things that that he did and realistically i think i don't know if you remember the old ps2 uh game frontline at all no but i had a ps2 back in the day so the year it came out was the year that frontline came out the the, the uh, game and it was for the pc as well but it basically walked through what my grandpa experienced wow. um, with D-Day and going into the Battle of the Bulge. My grandpa wasn't at D-Day. He was too young for that. Uh, but he ended up coming in later on to Market Garden at the end of Market Garden and then into the Bulge. And then he was part of the occupation forces in Germany um, until 1946. So wow. it was, I think that really sort of opened the conversation for him. You know, I think that was something that he saw that I was interested in it. And I was, you know, just kind of casually at the time, because of course it just looked like a cool game to a nine, 10 year old. Um, but I was lucky because I got to hear a lot more about his, his service uh, before he ended up passing uh, probably about three years, four years later or so. Yeah. So. That's so interesting that you have that firsthand experience. And I think that that offers you an insight into why, the uniforms need to be and should be respected and yes. treated with care now, which is also something we'll probably end up touching on a bit. Um, but before we go any further, I kind of wanted to ask you to explain what you're wearing and we can kind of talk about our outfits really quickly because we are on camera for any of those any of those who are watching. Crossing fingers, this continues. Yeah, <laughs> our, we're having our some tech problems. issues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel terrible because, you know, I, I somehow do this for a living and or my camera should be working like that. And suddenly 
the tech every gods time, just said no. <laughs> every time it happens with every guest I have, we always run into an issue. And I feel like I'm learning so much. That's why I'm able to keep kind of calm through all of this because I know it always ends up working out somehow. Just don't don't panic. Don't panic at any point in time. Right. It doesn't help. between between tech and trolley operating. Do not panic. Oh, oh, that's good. The key to success. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. So I can start by saying what I'm wearing. This is a, a Rayon 40s dress that I got from my friend in Colorado who sent me some really lovely vintage pieces. And I'm wearing a 20s glass bead necklace. It's either 20s or 30s. I cannot remember. And um, that's about it. But I just, I love these Rayon 40s dresses. And I really wanted to ask you about what you're wearing today, Katie. Yes. And that sort of segues into the reason why I ended up starting talking with you as well. Um, so what I am wearing right now is a first generation women's Marines seersucker uniform. And I say the first because you can see that I have the white buttons here. Um, and that is an indication that this is going to be dated right around 1943 time period. Um, and because it has the buttons instead of the uh, sort of jade uh, gilt buttons that the men uh, often had or a, a pattern that the men had, um, this sort of dates it to a little bit more of a rare piece as well. The reason why it's so significant is because it is a work uniform, but can, it can also be dressed up. So it sort of depends on what the uniform of the day would have been, uh, what sort of duties that you were doing that day. It's very comfortable because it is a seersucker material. And so it's very lightweight, it's very breathable. Uh, it has all the benefits of that, that classic seersucker that we just can't find today anymore. Um, a lot of folks, when we're talking about reproducing these uniforms, because of course, uh, in many ways, we prefer to bring out reproductions where we can, especially for summer uniforms, because the summer uniforms can get, of course, very sweaty, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and we've been looking and looking, and realistically, this kind of quality of seersucker is just not seen out there in the wild anymore. So I know a few folks who have like bolts of the same fabric or whatnot, uh, but that's what's really increasing the rarity of this particular uniform, not only because of course the materials are, are not easily sourced anymore, but also because so few women, relatively speaking, served in the Marine Corps at the time. And yeah. I can show you my, my overseas hat for folks that want to see. It's that oh, lovely, love um, I suppose it's spruce instead of jade, I should say. Uh, but it's more of a, yeah, a, a very beautiful green that, that is so unique and very unique to the Marine Corps at the time. So, and, and unfortunately, they didn't quite continue that. It gets a little bit darker as you go forward into the 50s and then, of course, 60s and such. Um, but that's kind of why I also am very passionate about uh, the World War II uniforms because their uniqueness is something that will never be recreated. Yes, exactly. And that makes sense as to why they are becoming so sought after and expensive these days too. And I just did want to add that I really love that green color and it goes so well with your red hair. And I'm sure you know that <laughs> is probably I mean, why between you like the green too. and the, the navy blue, I mean, I, I can't 
can't uh, be too upset. <laughs> no, 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 you should, you shouldn't. Um, we are also, I noticed that you mentioned something about why you like to collect the uniforms and you want to dispel the myth that women who served were just nurses or there for entertainment. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because this topic is just so fascinating. So it's something that I'm super passionate about uh, because, you know, whenever you go to reenactments or you set up displays, you get the inevitable, hello, nurse, <laughs> or are you a the Andrews sister? Ew. And it, it doesn't help that people are like, oh, but your smile is so, it's like, yes, thank you. I, I know that. I can't <laughs> smile smaller, more, more appropriate, I guess. So, so, you know, and because of that, um, that's why I, I don't tend to bring out my Army Nurse Corps impressions or Navy Nurse Corps impressions as much as the other ones. And, and the reason for that is just simply that we don't talk enough about everything that women did in addition to being nurses. And that's not to say that being a nurse at the time was not an absolutely incredible and necessary job, but it's also that whenever we have that sort of popular imagination of how women participated in World War II, we really don't talk about like the clerical workers, the storekeepers, the, the non-glamorous sort of jobs that can were canteen. So, yes, <laughs> that were so necessary. Um, and I think that for me, when I talk about you know, someone who would have been in the Marines, who would have been part of, you know, the, the sort of cog in the wheel, but also important because, of course, being a, a woman in the Marine Corps uh, would have been extraordinary in and of itself at that time. Um, I really want to emphasize that. I really want folks to really sit with that and say, my goodness, this is not normal in the best possible sense, but it's not normal because we take it for granted nowadays that that career path is open to everyone. And in the 1940s, that simply was not the case. And we do have instances prior of women in World War I, um, actually in the Marine Corps, uh, the Marines and the Navy were the two branches that opened up in addition, of course, to the Army nurses. But um, but those were the two that really opened up to female involvement that was sort of non-medical. And so because of that history and because of sort of that, that long tradition, I really do like to emphasize the Navy, the Coast Guard and the Marine Corps, because for me, um, that is something that again, doesn't get a lot of play, but also to me is, is near and dear to my heart. I, I, I would have been joining the Navy <laughs> if, if anything. My dad was like, you're going to go Air Force. And I'm like, but I like boats. <laughs> yeah. No, that so. makes sense. I always was, was particularly taken with the, with the Navy um, white uniform that was designed by was it men, men Boucher? Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of other women probably felt that way too, because I, I noticed that there tends to be a bit more wave stuff out there, like the, the blues, I think, than um, some of the other branches. I, I yeah. found that it was a little bit more affordable to get that uniform than like yes. a wax uniform. And it 
I guess maybe it was because maybe more women were interested in joining that branch. And I know it wasn't all about so, the uniform. That's, so that's a great point. That's a, and that's a curiosity of the modern sales of uniforms going on right now that I've been watching. So, you know, of course, I've been watching this for, for quite a long time. But something that I've noticed is that the, the uniforms do go in trends. Mm-hmm. And I think we could say that about vintage in general. I mean, the, the vintage that folks are picking up right now for $500 would have gone for $88 in 2013, um, you know, just as an example. But I think that with the uniforms, a lot of them are being bought for collector items. A lot of them are being bought and hoarded by folks that, you know, have extensive collections. Guilty. <laughs> um but I think you will see a lot of times when people are letting them go, it's men. And a lot of times it's older men. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is that, you know, these are the guys that were on the forefront of sort of the reenacting military, uh, the, the historical sort of collecting sort of thing. And they bought it all back in the 70s and such when, when it was pennies on the dollar to buy these uniforms. Nobody cared. You know, if somebody passed away, their uniforms were just thrown in a bin. Nobody really cared. And especially because with women, it was a little more rare from what I can tell to hear women really being as sort of out in the open about their service as the men um, in sort of in, in common sort of life circles. And, and that probably is also why I personally didn't hear a lot about my grandma being in the whack. Um, because again, plays into the idea that, that women just were not part of the war. You know, women were ancillary. Women didn't really fight. And I think that's something that, that got into our cultural imagination going forward because you do see that at the end of World War II, like with the spars in particular, um, the spars ended up, you know, shutting the program down and women didn't join until again, until in the seventies. So you really do have this varied treatment of women in the service. You have a lot of gals that were just told, hit the road, go home. Um, and so I think that left them with a very mixed feeling about their service. Mm -hmm. I think they were very proud to have served. I think they were very proud to have worn the uniform. Um, but I think a lot of times they had that sort of feeling of dismissal that I think all of us, when we experience it at one point in time in our life, you know, it's sort of, it takes the, the, it takes the fun out of things <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, the fact that it's, it, it's been such an uphill fight to get something like the women's veterans Memorial um, to have women ha be re represented in any of these museums. I mean, goodness, you, you go down to the world war II museum in new Orleans and you see maybe a grand total of five women's uniforms. I mean, you do not see this uniform. Um, you do not see any Marine Corps uniform, the ones that you see are Navy nurse, WAC, Army nurse, and that's about it. There's a Coast Guard uniform, but it's up in the 
the rafters. It's not really part of the, the display. And I don't even think that that was uh, a 40s uniform. So I walked out of there with my friend and my friend was like, you realize I learned more about the women's involvement in World War II and what they did from you and your displays than I did at, at a museum that is supposed to celebrate World War II veterans. And wow. that, that, that really hit me. That really hit me because then when we went to the Marine Corps uh, Museum out in Virginia, the same thing. I mean, the Marines, again, had this uniform. They had an HBT set. They had a white uniform, another really pretty white uniform. I really do like that uniform. Mm -hmm. um, and then they had their greens, you know, your, your sort of traditional um, class A's. And they only had the, the traditional class A's in one section of the museum in glass. And they had kind of a blurb about it. But I kind of sat there like, I know you probably have these donated to your museum. Why don't we get to see the plethora of uniforms for the women that we do the men? Because, I mean, you go to those museums and you will see every variation of one shovel that you will ever want to see in your life. <laughs> My goodness, if a rivet was, was changed at any point in time, you will know it because they will say, oh, yes, that is the P41 1911. <laughs> and I'm just like, so where are the women? Right. <laughs> you know, right? It's, it's like, where are the women? Yeah. Um, and if you go to the, the Women's Veterans Memorial next to Arlington, they have a fabulous display there. I mean, it is just you know, comprehensive, fabulous. Um, actually, where I got to see the model of the the boat, the spar. So it's a Coast Guard cutter that actually came to Duluth. So we do have the spar named for the ladies who joined the Coast Guard in World War II. And she's actually the spar too, because there was a first spar that was actually built in Duluth, Minnesota. And then they sank her. But anyways, she's an artificial reef now in, in Florida. Wow. That, that's all so cool. And I really appreciate you talking about this stuff with me because I'm learning a lot too. And one thing you said that really capt captivated me a little bit was the thought that women's work wasn't seen as important or as like valid as what the men were doing. And what the men were doing was, you know, it won, helped us to win the war. It was very important too. Um, but it kind of goes with that theme of women traditionally and still in some ways really do a lot of the more invisible unseen work behind the scenes to support. And just because it's not the more outward display of action, then people really do tend to get the wrong idea about how much that they contributed. And we're still seeing that today with like you were saying, how few uniforms are actually on display and how, how little people know about it and talk about it. And I think that that needs to change for sure. And I think a whole museum could be dedicated to women's service and, and it should be at some point. <laughs> it really well, should. And, and how tokenized uh, female involvement in reenacting is. Yes. Um, like, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I could write a book about that. <laughs> I know. When we first got on, I was joking with Katie and I asked her if she was dressed as the Andrews sisters because she, she mentioned that to me before. And, and I just had to have a laugh about that because even wearing regular civilian style vintage clothing, I get so many weird questions and comments usually from people of a certain age um <laughs> asking me like one time i went to tombstone arizona and i was dressed just like this and someone some older guy was like oh you've got the wrong era did you know when you you know got dressed today that you're dressed <laughs> wrong for tombstone and i just had to ignore that it was so stupid but people have asked me all sorts of things like are you the charleston or like are you the great gatsby <laughs> like they'll ask me specifically if i am the great gatsby <laughs> yes <laughs> like, you should you should say that i, I said yes i am old sport and <laughs> and yes. and one guy asked me if i was the french quarter like at Disneyland, like he asked if I was the French Quarter. And I just, I don't even know we. where people get these questions. We. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, that's me. That's me, honey. So I, I understand like sometimes the frustra frustration at just how some people can like simplify what you're doing or like reduce it to something or, and I understand sometimes they just don't know and they're trying to start a conversation and that's their way. But also I don't think that some people realize what they're doing can be seen as a little bit like either ignorant or, or arrogant or just like presumptive. It, yeah. And if you don't know, I think it's better to just ask questions rather than just assume, you know, exactly what they're doing and what their intentions are and then like make a display out of it. Because it yeah. can be taken in a completely different way if you were to just ask, like, hey, can you tell me about your uniform? If you don't know, you know, just don't assume it's it's something easily identifiable with maybe our culture yeah. or something. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this this topic, I mean, we could, we could spend hours dissecting all of the things about reenacting uniforms, all of the things that... I've encountered throughout my time doing this because, I mean, I've reenacted on, you know, the coasts, I've reenacted down south, I've, I've obviously, I'm based in the Minnesota area, but I'm also, you know, around the Great Lakes as well. Um, and so the culture in general about, you know, how we see our service members is definitely part of the way that people interact with you. Um, and at, as somebody who is not a service member, I am always very cognizant of that fact that I am wearing a uniform, um, but this is not something that I can claim at any point in time. And so, well, I won't say any point in time because that might be something down the line, but you never know. TBD. <laughs> yeah. TBA. You might have to follow along on my Instagram to, to figure yeah. that one out. <laughs> um, but so, and you know, my husband is a Marine. And that's why I, I feel more comfortable wearing the Marine Corps uniform. One of the things that you will see with folks, especially folks who are part of the Marines, is that that uniform, the EGA in particular, is very symbolic of the struggle it takes to get to become a Marine. And, you know, that's not something that's given lightly. Everybody who went through earned the right to have that EGA on. And so for me, it's an honor to wear it. That's why I take such intense care uh, when I do wear it. I make sure that 
my husband, Tony, looks me over <laughs> several times yeah. um, because I want to make sure that everything that I'm doing is correct and portrays the Marine Corps to the standard that the Marine Corps would, would want of its folks. <laughs> and that's been... That's been something in particular, you know, when I when I've seen other folks wear the uniform that has been kind of a sticking point. And that's been a sticking point for my husband as well, because it can be done very well. It can be done very poorly. And if you just treat the uniform as just another sort of, you know, thing that you throw on from time to time, um, it shows it shows. And you you can't fake that research or the dedication or the actual care um, that goes into these uniforms and that that you know the people wearing these uniforms showed these uniforms and you know people several people have gotten an earful from me <laughs> um, complaining about certain folks um, who who don't do the do it correctly or who might be doing it just because they just want people to talk about them. But either way, I, I don't care. If you look like a sad sack in the uniform when I know you can do better, um, that's just that's just not acceptable to me. And I've and we've talked a little bit about how certain reenacting groups might wear their uniforms incorrectly, but with a lot of confidence, um, maybe like making videos of them kind of goofing off wearing these uniforms improperly. Um, you said you've heard feedback from other people who have served, who are maybe active duty too. And what is their impression of, of people who aren't taking it seriously, who aren't taking that care to present themselves with like that honor and dignity that you might respect or expect from them? Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard from both veterans and from active duty members um, who believe like specifically like uh, one video involved a bunch of uh, army nurse corps members and that was a particular sticking point with especially you know the active duty member because they're portraying officers and even you know because um, my friend is a reenactor as well she's like you know i'm part of the service and i'm enlisted and i do not feel like i have the authority to wear the officer stripes because I'm not comfortable with it, even even at her rank. She's like, I'm not comfortable with it. And to see people wearing the uniform as officers to conduct themselves in a manner that was unbecoming of an officer um, and sort of being celebrated for it or thinking that this was something that was very, very cute to post um, really, really made her upset. I mean, it was it was a very much a, a sticking point. And at another event that we were at, uh, there was there's a fellow that we're with who is a Marine who actually was part of the White House detail. Uh, so he got to be like the, the Marine at the door in Air Force One to, to greet the president. Um, and he has such fabulous stories. I mean, just fabulous stories. It's so cool. Um, some some more appropriate for podcasts than others. Yeah, <laughs> I'm intrigued now. Oh yes, we will. I will. I will tell you about him because okay. he's he's a wonderful person. Um, 
And he was at the event. And this is actually how I started really talking with him because he said that he actually had to walk away from the display that these other folks were putting on because he said that so many things were incorrect with the uniform that it was not worth his time to break it down for them because he's like, because they don't care. And his wife was with him and she tried to get them to tell them anything about how, what they were wearing, what they were doing, what, what these folks would have been doing in the service. And she was like, and they, they couldn't tell me anything. They just sort of referred me to their literature on the table and then they walked away. Um, so yeah, so of course, you know, the, the Marine is, was very upset and it's not in his nature because, you know, he comes from, from farm country. I don't think, you know, a lot of times farm country folks, you know, want to, to show that outward emotion. I, that's just not very, um, that's just not very much in their character from what I've experienced. And so, you know, he was kind of like, I'm just going to let it go, whatever. But I really appreciate that you're actually putting the time into this display and you can tell me about, about what you're wearing um, and that you, you do it correctly. Because at the time I was wearing this, I, I was wearing the Marine Corps Seersucker. And, and it is important to do your research and no one is ever going to know everything. No. And we're not saying no. that we expect that, but it is also very important that if you're going to put on a uniform to portray a certain impression that you know what the uniform is about, what someone who was wearing that uniform might have done during that time yeah. period. And I'm pretty new into the whole reenacting scene. And I went to airman's ball with my husband who's in the air yeah. force and we wore um vintage army uniforms because the air force that was before the air force during world war ii was like officially created yeah. and army we, air corps yeah exactly exactly and um i had acquired an officer's uniform and my husband didn't even want to like stand too close to me because he's enlisted and and at the time I was a little bit taken aback by that like just because when you wear the uniform there's a certain level of decorum that's expected of you yeah. and and I noticed that some of his enlisted students that were there were a little bit unsure of how to act around me too because I was wearing yep. the officer's stripes yep. and and I kind of knew already he kind of briefed me about that but it's important to remember just how seriously people in the military take rank and how it needs to be respected if you're going to wear that. And I wasn't doing jumping jacks or like goofing off while wearing it. I was kind of just taking it all in. Because Pants that, dance. That was, yeah, that was my first time ever wearing anything like that to any kind of event. And, and I at least tried to make sure I could explain what I was wearing and why and maybe where it was worn. And there's just still so much that I have to learn. But, but yeah. yeah. And, and I have a story, actually, I didn't tell you this story, but um, I have a story that, that plays into that uh, because you don't know who you're around. Um, ultimately, the, the most important thing to remember when you're reenacting is that you do not know who you are around. And I found that out. Uh, I mean, I found that out several times, but I found that out most recently when I was up in Duluth Minnesota, for anybody who is wondering what where Duluth is, it's along Lake Superior. Um, it's our, our port city. Um, I was in Duluth. I was doing a display for the museum up there. And we were talking and we were sort of doing our thing. And, and uh, my friend and I decided at the end that we would go and get dinner. 
And so we did, we got dinner with her family, wonderful time. And then they, I said goodbye to them because they weren't staying overnight and I was, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go and just grab a nightcap over at our favorite uh, distillery called Vikra. And we are always at this distillery, I will say. If, you, if, you ever, <laughs> if you're ever in Duluth and you want to find me, just head to Vikra. Because <laughs> uh, we love this place. Uh, we've loved it since its inception. Um, there's a couple other places as well. But, you know, so I was like, I'm just going to go grab a nightcap. I know they've got a really good cocktail right now that I really enjoyed. Um, going to grab that. Going to go go back to the hotel. I had switched out of my officer gear because I don't tend to like to wear the officer gear out in public, especially if I'm alone, uh, because something could be misconstrued or somebody, you know, obviously something could happen because of that. So I just switched into an enlisted spars jacket because, of course, the skirt's pretty much interchangeable. To an untrained eye, you're not going to see the difference between the officer cut and or the officer uh, weave and the enlisted. And it really wasn't that much of a difference when you're considering that, like, most of the, the waves and spars were pretty standardized and they were pretty interchangeable in general together. Um, and I headed off to Vikra. Got there, having my drink. They asked me, hey, you know, someone else is here alone. Um, do you want to? would you mind? And I'm like, I'm going to finish this drink anyway. So bring him up. Guy looked like just any normal sort of country guy that is around Duluth, dressed very normally, came up and we just started talking because why not? Then I asked him, so what are you doing in town? Because he said he's from out of town. And he's like, oh, I'm on the Coast Guard boat that came in to help clear the port for ice. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. You're coasty. Didn't think much of it because, of course, you know, Coast Guard does does its thing. Um, but I'm wearing a, a Coast Guard uniform, so I'm very cognizant of this at this point. <laughs> um, so I didn't go much further into it because he really didn't, you know, say anything about it. He didn't, you know, go further into it. And then we go further into the conversation. And upon further into the conversation, we're talking about Coast Guard ice ops and everything. And he says, yes, you know, we don't work at night, but if something happens, folks will come get me. And I said, what? So what is your job on the boat? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm the CO. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> was he in uniform? <laughs> no, he was okay. dressed just like anyone else. Because, I mean, when they when they get leave, of course, I mean, you know, they, they can dress in civvies and everything. <laughs> and so, so I started just like, really, really? This is this. I, I've just been like babbling for the past hour. Yes, we ended up talking for like three hours. That one drink and done was not it. But we ended up talking. And so I was just like, yeah, like it was such a great example of the fact that I was talking to somebody who is in a position of authority currently in the United States Coast Guard in a uniform that is the United States Coast Guard's historic uniform for women. Yeah. And you really, from that, you really kind of have that sort of message hit home. You do not know who you are talking to. You right. do not know who you are running across at any point in time you are in uniform. So you always have to be sort of in the back of your mind, you know, this needs to be on point mm -hmm. or change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Those are your only, your only two options. Right. Do it right or don't, or don't do it at all. Exactly. You never know. And I was going to ask you, um, 
one question before we go into our first break. So what do you think are the right reasons for collecting vintage and militaria? And what values do you think a collector or reenactor should have surrounding collecting it? Yeah, so I think that when you talk about collecting militaria, I think that there are several reasons people do it. Um, and for me, the right reason is that you want to see this garment live on. You know, you want to see this garment, the story attached to it, if you're lucky enough to have, have found it or, you know, it came with it. Um, you want that to continue for future generations so that we are able to look back and say, yeah, you know, these people were real and here's the uniform. You know, it's not just behind glass in a museum. It's, it's not just static. And I think that's really the benefit of doing living histories because even though a lot of folks might say, you know, oh, we shouldn't be wearing these uniforms out. And I do agree that, that at some point, probably in, in the more near future than we want to admit, that it is not going to be something that I would suggest doing. Um, but for current generations, and of course, you know, just current, current climates, so to speak, I think that it's very important that we have a way to engage people in their history that is more than just a book, though I am a huge proponent of books. <laughs> As you can um, see behind you. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to show you the other side where my light is because that is a pile gay high. I have a lot I'm of like books stacking too. them. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, guilty, guilty as well. It happens. Um, they, they multiply. I swear. It's like, you know, come in the next day and you're just like, Oh, where'd that come from? Um, but you yeah, never I mean, have and... to justify buying a new book. I feel like no. that's just, I you never just feel in. like I have to wrangle with myself <laughs> or my conscience. It's always, yes. <laughs> it's always a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's been my, my goal from the start is to really give people an interactive experience, really give people um, that want to join the hobby, that way of, of expressing themselves. I mean, I have a gal who I'm mentoring, who is my friend as well, that is, you know, fresh out of high school. Uh, she met me at a vintage store and she had always sort of wanted to get into, you know, wearing the uniforms or the history. And it's really cool for her because she is now representing the CWAC or the Canadian Women's Army Corps, which is stupid rare. But it's important to her because her dad is Canadian. Oh. So and and so because she has that family tie, it's so cool to watch her sort of evolve and grow and learn and and really get into why it's important because you know, she her grandparents are not World War II veterans. I mean, heck, I, I was with a gal who's now twenty-eight. And she had never met a World War II veteran until the hangar dance here. And I grew up with them. You know, I grew up with them. These people were just all over, <laughs> you know, it was just sort of a normal upbringing. And so I really want to make sure that those things stay alive. And, and that's the same reason why I'm, I'm with the trolley as well, because the trolley in, in Minnesota, especially in the, in the Twin Cities, was just something that 
everyone talked about, everyone experienced it. It was such a, a universal experience. And, you know, it ties in that, you know, everyone who would have been experiencing World War II, the guys that went off to Fort Snelling to enlist, the gals that were here to go to Minneapolis to join whichever branch they were joining, they rode those streetcars. And so it's just such a great way of continuing to, to meld that together. And I think for me that that's the reason why, you know, I don't, I don't feel as terrible as I could with, with um, keeping the collection that I do, because I mean, I, I've, I've been doing a lot of displays and I have been trying to utilize them as much as possible in order to do, um, to have some ed educational purpose to it. So, yeah, no, that, much to my good. husband's chagrin, I should say, because he's <laughs> the one who sometimes lugs them around and he's like, oh, you have so much here. I know. And I'm kind Sorry. of getting to that point, too, where I've been trying to collect this past year and I have kind of like a whole plastic bin that I share with my husband to put uniforms in. But it's because I really do actually want to wear them. And it just takes a long time to slowly get like a full uniform together. And it's it's gotten so expensive now. Yeah, and it's definitely and gotten worse. And I'm actually going to put us on a break really quick, but I want to come back and finish talking about this. So yes. just let it kind of stay on the tip of your tongue and marinate. Yeah, let it marinate for just a minute. And I'm going to <laughs> step away and we'll be right back. Thanks for hanging in there. So I'm going to just go into our next question. And I wanted to ask you, Katie, so how was it breaking into the reenacting and vintage scene? And what are some of the obstacles you faced? So it was hard. Um, I, I'm not going to lie and say that it was easy or that, you know, it was very fun at first because it actually was quite hard. Um, my first interactions with the folks around here with reenacting and stuff um, and vintage, even in the vintage community, I mean, like in anything, you know, there's, there's good and bad. And, and I encountered both. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that I encountered that because there's a, a, a local group here that had uniforms and whatnot, and, and, you know, I obviously was very interested in portraying the women in uniform, um, my husband was like, well, why don't you reach out to them and whatnot? So I did, and I got kind of these cagey responses and whatnot. And, uh, our first event we pulled in and my dad and I had gone shopping at a local vintage store who was very helpful. And she gave me, you know, the things that she had in stock, which ends up being like right now, I can tell you they're, they're late, late forties, early fifties 
garments. But at the time, you know, this was kind of what she had to give me that would have fit me. And I, so we pulled in, opened the door, these gals came over and they came over to see what I had and they promptly started laughing. And I, you know, of course I'm like, okay, what's going on? You know, I just met these gals. Like they hadn't really like asked me any questions. It was not, you know, like the, the niceties of when Mm -hmm. you meet people. And apparently later on, I came to find out that I had bought one of their fat dresses. What? Tell me more. Yes. Um, So one of the gals, actually the gal that they had tried to hook my husband up with. um, So which is how he ended up knowing these gals um, was bigger. I I mean, a 30 inch waist is not big by any means. Um, But she was bigger and she had lost weight because there was a certain sort of image expectation at the time. And so because of that, you know, she didn't fit into these dresses. So she had sold one to the place that I had, you know, ended up at. And that was the dress that I had ended up getting. And that was just kind of my first interaction. They really didn't welcome me. I kind of walked around. They ignored me for the most part. Um, I tried to engage them and it just really got to the point where I was just like, it's pretty clear that I'm not wanted around here. So hold on one second. I just want to make make this clear. So you showed up looking Mm -hmm. for welcoming and some community and the first thing they do is laugh at you and tell you that you're wearing one of her fat dresses that she they didn't necessarily tell me that but that was why they laughed because later on my husband was like oh yeah you know the one lost a lot of weight because when she was over with him when they were dating um Mm -hmm. not to get into too much of that drama but dating um she basically had a plain chicken breast and a piece of corn on the cob and that was her dinner oh okay. and so he I was see. like so she was actively in the the efforts of intentionally losing weight did she call them her fat dresses like to him or was that just <laughs> it was kind of, it was what was inferred got it okay okay <laughs> because so you think... well because at the end of the day um there was there was a very big sort of push at the time to fit into a certain waist size, especially Mm -hmm. with the uniforms, because it was very much, as I said, one of those groups that is more image-based than, than anything else. And so because of that, they had a lot of the uniforms uh, that fit up to a 27 inch waist And beyond that, they were like, you know, oh, you know, women weren't that big back in the day. And this is also Mm -hmm. the same group that that put on a fashion show uh, that proudly narrated that women did not wear pants in the 40s. Wow. Because Catherine Hepburn is apparently a figment of our imagination collectively. And so (laughs) so is my grandma, whose uh, pictures I have plenty of. Um, And every every catalog from that time period. It's Sears catalogs, anyone? Interesting. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, and 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 
I just, it, this was my first experience, my first real experience with like the female reenactor. And I say reenactor because my definition of reenactor is completely different at this point. Um, and so I will never forget how excited my husband was to introduce me to these gals and how much he was looking forward to us all getting together, going on Jeep rides like he did with the gals beforehand when they would invite him out. And that first time that they didn't text him to go out and do the Jeep ride was when I was with him. And he looked so crestfallen. I mean, I know, I know exactly where I was at that time. I know I can tell you exactly what was going on at that time. I can tell you exactly what room we were in. And I can tell you exactly what I was wearing because it was such a poignant example of how just unwelcoming it was initially to join this, this hobby. So do you have, do you think that they, mostly rejected you not out of maybe jealousy because of that connection with your husband but maybe more because you weren't like a size two i mean d all the above <laughs> you know it, it's speculation yeah. but it's one of those things that i mean i have no idea you know what i did initially to sort of deserve to be laughed at number one you know no and nobody's right. ever broken this down for me like nobody's ever said you know this is why and they've all they've all just sort of just that's their story and they're, they're sticking to it sort of thing. And so, you know, that's been, that's been my, that was my experience at first. And, and, you know, I had tried like later on to communicate with them again, because I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe they were just having an off day. Maybe this is just one of those things. You know, I, I don't know. People have off days. People have off years. It's, I, I, you always want to assume good intent. You always want to assume good intent. You always want to assume that it's not you per se, you know, because it's like, because people have other things going on. Mm -hmm. That That's just the yeah. way life is. Somebody, somebody might be very surly to you in the morning and, and our minds immediately go to, oh my gosh, I did something. What, what's going on? But it might be because, you know, they got kicked by a mule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely um, it. <laughs> you would definitely be upset after you got kicked by a mule. Yeah. Not personal experience, but came quite <laughs> close with a horse one time. Um, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but so, I, you know, I reached out to them later, and we went to our event, Rockford, and I had been kind of... Uh, part of a, a email chain with them and they had brought a hat that would work with my my outfit at the time you know they had said all this they said you know we're going to set up stuff and the one gal's a hairdresser so she was like you know i can do your hair well night of the dance comes nowhere to be seen oh, completely wow. ghosted completely ghosted and they had a hotel so they went back to the hotel and later on i saw that they were in the hot tub at the hotel well i'm sitting there like well, what am I going to do? Because I don't know, you know, my hair or anything. I don't know. So I was basically in the in in the community bathroom at the event, just crying because I felt just so. I I just felt so 
upset that I felt, you know, so alone in many ways. And here I am just trying to do something with my husband and trying to get into it because I really do want to help tell the stories and to do this um, for, for what I would consider pretty authentic reasons. And then I'll never forget because um, the daughter of our, our unit commander at the time for the Italians came in with, with a hair curler and she just sat me down and she was like, it's okay. I will absolutely like do your hair for you. And so she did. Oh, bless so, her for doing the right thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kind. I mean, she, you know, she, we, we had said that this was all what was supposed to happen and, you know, she knew everything had fallen apart. So. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of sounds like you were probably feeling a lot of rejection and I imagine it would have been really hard to make sense of that because most people have pretty positive stories about reenactment groups and people who all kind of genuinely want to enjoy history together. It's kind of like a niche, or at least it was mm -hmm. like a niche nerdy thing where you could find community there if you weren't yeah. able to find it elsewhere out in the yep. sometimes cruel world. Um, so I can see how that would have been like quite a blow to receive like mean girl kind of treatment, like clicky treatment and you weren't even really able to put your finger on why it was happening. Um, it's like sometimes with those types of groups, you're either accepted or you're not. And then you're left with a lot of questions when you're not because you didn't even do anything wrong except to just yep. be yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, you know, that's been sort of my experience with everything. I mean, like we're talking about with vintage too. I mean, that's been that's been something that I've noticed a lot of. And, and a lot of times I attribute it to the fact that I'm in flyover country. You know, I am not on the coasts. I'm not at, you know, these, these big get togethers. So people know me from my social media presence, but people don't, you know, actually know me to a large extent. And so because of that, and because, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly well off or anything, and I'm not throwing, you know, thousands of dollars at, at various different things, um, I think it always boils down to a, why are you here and what benefit do you bring us sort of feel? And that is, those are kind of the two questions that I feel like sort of permeate the, the, the community in general in, in many ways. Um, when you're not part of the in crowd, when you're not part of the cool girls. And it's human nature, of course, to want to go to um, groups. It's it's human nature to be clicky. It's human nature to sort of put people on a pedestal that you want to emulate, that are that are aspirational. But in so many ways, I guess I probably thought that a lot more people would be more interested in sort of leveling the playing field because we're all sort of misfits in a way. It's... It's challenging to understand because I do feel like it's human nature to want to find and seek harmony within a group of like-minded people, which is something I think maybe we all can kind of get behind. But at the same time, there's this darker side of sometimes human nature where it's like your ego is kind of leading you. And instead of seeking connection and welcoming others, it turns into like a competition because you're worried yes. about maybe becoming obsolete of someone who is dressed better comes along or maybe you want to feel like you have some authority and power to like dictate whatever 
fashions people are wearing or or you want to feel like you're the social leader some people really do like have that ego need for for power recognition authority and i think that that can be unhealthy and i see that a lot in the vintage community where i myself have felt like kind of an outsider my whole life and i know you mentioned that too for yourself a little bit um yeah but I thought that by joining Instagram and finding other people who liked the same things as I did, that I would finally maybe be able to feel like I fit in a little bit more. And in some ways I have, I've met some really great people, including you who get it. But I also noticed there's like this, (laughs) (laughs) there's there's this like upper group of people that, yeah, there's like this group of, you know, people who have a lot of followers somehow who seem to just kind of be like, I don't want to say untouchable because I'm not falling over myself to be friends with anyone that doesn't want to be friends with me. But I do notice there is this like separation of people who are either like in it and they all comment on each other's stuff and are best friends. And then there's people who just like kind of fall by the wayside and, and that's okay. Like I don't need that recognition too, but I, I do notice that sometimes if you get caught up in it, it doesn't feel good to say like, why are these people getting this attention or like these partnerships or like, this adoration and acclaim, but you know, my outfits are just as nice and like, I can do my hair too. So I don't understand. Well, and, and that is something too. I mean, you, you hit it square on the head there because literally there is a hashtag that we use community, not competition, world war two, because the world war two community, especially the women really did see that we were getting caught up in the, in the competition part of it. And so for me, when I go through and I talk about that with folks, yeah, it is, it is an ego thing. It is an ego thing. You do have to go back and sort of say, Hey, you know, just because we can afford one uniform or another doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, anybody is, better inherently, but it does walk us into the the territory of who gets to tell the stories and who is it yeah. that we are going to see in the future telling the stories? Is it the people that are the ones who have the, the passion for it? Or is it the people that at the end of the day are going to, um, you know, be able to afford it. And, and I'm trying to think about, you know, ways that we can sort of breach that gap because a lot of times it is about affording it. And I can't say that it's not sort of pay to play in a lot of ways, but realistically we do have to sort of have that um, sort of introspection within ourselves in order for us to really um, get to the heart of that question. And I think that that's a, a very, very big question for for the future of, of not just reenacting, but but vintage as well. So I really do agree with you. And what you said about pay to play is so 
true because I feel like with vintage and reenacting these days, you're approaching like the big expensive high roller roulette table in Vegas. And, you know, I'm usually the one at the penny slots, like the really nerdy, like <laughs> kitty, kitty glitter machines, like taking a 20 and trying to make it last all night and sitting there with like garbage free champagne or something. And just <laughs> that is that is the only thing Tony and I did in Vegas. I will say the penny slots at Circus Circus. That was the only gambling in Vegas that we've ever done. That's the only gambling that brings my heart joy is sitting at the penny slots because the machines are ridiculous. The imagery yeah. on the videos yeah, is are. just <laughs> great. And when you somehow win, it's really exciting and you don't really have to like spend that much to be able yes. to play for hours. So that's the kind of fun that I can get behind. But anyways, maybe that's why I'm not like a high roller in the vintage community either because I penny slot. I just I, I'm I'm comfortable with I'm comfortable with not like being the one who's spending the most money or being the most extravagant. Like I just kind of want to keep it as real as possible with dressing like maybe a average stylish woman would have dressed back then. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that brings up a great point, too, in that, you know, there is vintage out there for everyone. However, I think that when you get to the point of wanting a particular thing, like, like novelty prints, mm -hmm. um, novelty prints would have been an everyday thing for women in the 40s. I mean, you know, it's, we have the, the floral feed sack dresses from the 30s because you know, that was accessible. And so for folks to sort of say, you know, oh, no, 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 you know, you can have a, a plain day dress or X, Y, Z um, sort of, of garment and be perfectly happy with it. I mean, yes, at, at some certain sense of that, yes, you can be happy with that. And I obviously don't think, you know, if you're starting your collection, that's terrible. Um, but I also think that it's not unreasonable to want other things mm -hmm. and it's not unreasonable to want to buy items that would have been more higher priced, especially because as we can see just sort of going on throughout here uh, and throughout the, the time that I've, I've been in reenacting and, and vintage collecting that those items at one point in time were affordable. Mm -hmm. And and at one point in time, that was something that the average woman entering reenacting could achieve for themselves. They could have a rather nice 1940s wardrobe um, and, and, and not have broken the bank. Exactly. And there was a time where I'm going to, some people may not believe me, but I'm even going to say 10 years ago, I could go to local church sales where I grew up in Pennsylvania and people were selling these things for 50 cents, 10 cents, a dollar. Like there was a time up until very recently where people didn't really want this stuff. And that's what attracted people that maybe didn't have a lot of money but still wanted to dress creatively and express themselves artistically that's where we went and that's what our go-to was and that was our only option that was really available to us so seeing and this goes for uniforms too and seeing mm -hmm. the fact that nowadays some people have chosen to adopt it as trendy as a commodity as like a status symbol 
that's yes. what feels so backwards to me because these were the same kids possibly who were making fun of me in school for telling them I got something at the thrift store. Yet now they want to collect the items that maybe in the Sears catalog were in the cheapo discount dress sections, like the the caught in prints or like the rayon print dresses, like yeah. something like what I'm wearing probably would have been considered like a bargain item. Um, but they were they were cheap. They were pretty. They were bright. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back then people were still kind of like coveting the higher quality, like long lasting materials, I would say more. Like I know that rayon was a necessity during the war and most people were wearing that stuff. But but it's just interesting how these days the items that are trendy, covetable, very expensive aren't always the ones made from like the finest materials. Sometimes they're going to be the, yeah. the dresses and outfits that were actually worn by some of the poorest people. And yes. it's it's very complex and sometimes difficult for me to wrap my head around um, knowing I think that, that, yeah. I was thinking about that last night because of, you know, after you made that post. Yeah. I think that plays directly into the shabby chic farmhouse aesthetic that so many people are trying to cultivate right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's that romanticization, I can speak, <laughs> of, of being poor. Um, that, that sort of, I, I, I mean, I almost think of it in terms of clothing gentrification. It is. Of, yeah. you know, you, you know, you see all these designers with like rips and tears and things like that. And it's like back in the 40s, you would have been patching that, you know, mm -hmm. back in the time when, when people sort of didn't have a lot, it was, it was a, a source of pride to be able to come with a well-mended dress, your nice dress, even if it was cheap, what really did, rem what really did sort of mark the forties was the fact that so much attention was paid to the hang of the garment the material of the garment, the way that the garment fit. So even if it wasn't a high quality piece per se, it was still a very well put together piece that somebody with you know fewer means could wear a nice dress and not stick out. And, you know, and, and maybe like, you know, from our point of view, it's, you know, obviously we could talk about the the differences in shoes we could talk about the differences in accessories we could talk about sort of you know how 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 people definitely were differentiated by you know what kind of shoes you wore with a, a suit or things like that but overall it was sort of a more of a sense of everybody took good care of their clothes and everybody could because of the materials overall that were being used, which speaks to the longevity of, the, of these garments right now, too. Yeah. And one thing you um, didn't mention that I thought was also interesting to add is that back then, to be respectable, all you had to do was have some clean, nicely pressed clothes and to do your hair and like you were good. And it yeah. wasn't as much about like how expensive your outfit was, but people took a lot of pride in just like putting themselves together well. And that to them meant like dignity. So you're yeah. right though, the fact that today people are kind of gentrifying poor clothing and trying to look dirty and trying to look like disheveled um, kind of touches back to like a romanticization, like you were saying, of of the poor, of 
I think there's this perception of like the innocence and bliss of like yes. not having as, as much to worry about with your with money troubles or like I don't know. I and not by poverty. I just mean like I think that a lot of times people who have a lot of money feel like that defines them in their lives. And I think they yes. maybe envy the perceived innocence of of like the poor who doesn't have to worry about those extra things. And well and and, and we can see that today in, in the minimalism trend. Yeah, that's a good point. So many people right now are are arcing towards minimalism as an aesthetic, as a way of life. Uh, and and to be 100% honest, you know, they don't have to. They don't yeah. have to live a minimalist lifestyle. They have the means, more than likely, to have a few knickknacks around, around the apartment sort of thing. And so that really is... I think ultimately it does boil down to a lot of times when people are buying vintage clothing, um, we are trying to reclaim what we perceive as what was and, and whether that be a sense of patriotism, whether that be a sense of community, family, uh, the old sort of values that we all hear about from, you know, pop culture, maybe our own families about how much life was better when everybody could sit down at the dinner table when there was no phones in front of us. That is arcing back to that sort of need for so many people to go back to a simpler time. Mm -hmm. And what reenacting does is show you that it, it really wasn't necessarily a simpler time in a lot of ways. It's just that we didn't know that we had so many avenues open to us. Mm -hmm. um, like, women in the military, you know? I mean, of course, it's going to be a simpler time if you think that the only thing that you have in your future is clerical work and motherhood. So, you know, you're not going to go and see the sort of variation that we see right now um, out there. And I think that it's a way to understand what's going on in the world right now, because we don't have any sort of metric from which to base what's happening. It's brand yeah. new territory. It's very scary for a lot of folks. Um, and because we're trying to make sense of that, we're trying to put it into, into a framework that made sense where we came out okay in the end. Because that's really why people like the 40s and the 50s, because the world was chaotic. It was literally in flames. And yet at the end of the day, the United States came out okay. And... I think that's the security that we're looking for. And so I think for a lot of people, when they dress uh, in that era, or you know, even in the 50s and 60s to a certain extent, they're really looking to reclaim that. And so I think that's why the 40s speaks to such a more of a broad audience now um, than, than any time before or, or after. I mean, you know, beyond the, the Jay Gatsby sort of thing too. So, yeah. um, but I think a lot of people are also interested to find out at the end of the day that um, the 1920s didn't necessarily look like the, the 20, what was it? 2012, was it? Yeah, it was 2012. Uh, the 2012 Gatsby movie. Um, so I think that oh, that's something yeah. that when you talk about eras specifically, a lot of times they are influenced very specifically by our pop culture notions. And I think, you know, for the 40s as well, Captain America. I mean, Peggy, 
that sort of look. I think a lot of that really resonated with people. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be too upset with having Chris Evans around. <laughs> Okay, so you, as you know, there was a death threat on my account recently, to my surprise, honestly, I had no idea that someone was really going to go there. Um, but with where some of the other accusations were going, I suppose it doesn't really surprise me that much. And it's something that like, caused me quite a bit of anxiety, because, you know, I had some other resellers um, dismissing it, like Dear Golden called it histrionics. She's had their histrionics yeah, to, to me, surrounding to it. To me, yeah. She, yeah. I, when I was publicly inquiring, it, it was a public comment that she made. So, yep. and just the fact that there are so many people dismissing the fact that someone told me I need to be euthanized is very disturbing. And, you know, I feel like having free speech, having the right to express myself and bring up my concerns. I don't think that that warrants anybody harassing me or sending me death threats. And the no. fact that it's happening, it uh, it is a little scary. And I can speak to that from, from the legal standpoint, because um, that really, really infuriated me. Because you aren't doing anything that people aren't talking about behind the scenes. You're not saying anything that I haven't heard from multiple people for years about the price of vintage or the availability of vintage or the fact that we have seen our local folks at estate sales picking things up for pennies and charging hundreds of dollars later. We're not stupid. And that's something that I really, in that interaction with Dear Golden, that to me was one of the things that I just could not believe because there's a death threat to you on the table now, to your family, to your friends even, because vis-a-vis, who knows who else is going to be getting these death threats for participating in this conversation? A conversation mm -hmm. which, by the way, was started because you asked why a hat that you lost out on for $30 was marked up 500% once it hit a reseller's shop. There yeah. is nothing inherently misogynist about that question. There is nothing inherently devious about that discussion. And yet somehow, for whatever reason, you're getting death threats. So, you know, for me, from from being in the community, also doing some pinup modeling on the side, you know, whenever they're they're flinging this lawsuit idea at you as well, because I know that you had shared that you had had a couple of those. Um, so one of the biggest things to note about that is that this is very common when people are trying to make you stop talking. Um, a lot of people do it. My experience with that has been majority when photographers or guys with cameras we call them threaten models who were trying to out them for molesting them or assaulting them 
or doing something. I have had to send cease and desist letters on behalf of these models because they kept threatening lawsuits against them. And the whole thing about defamation, the whole thing is number one, they have to prove that it's false or malicious. Having a conversation why these items are being bought for 30 bucks and being turned around for, I don't know, the sky's the limit is not malicious. No. And so for them to be saying this, for them to be coming at you with this is, is so outrageous. And you do not need to deal with that. And you shouldn't. Any sort of business that's doing that is not out there to have a conversation. And, and, and it's so funny because they, they talk about, we're in the vintage community. We're a community here. We're doing all of this because we're in it together sort of thing. And then suddenly people are getting death threats. Right, for speaking or like, just asking questions. I, I have to wonder if the other folks that they've had issues with have received death threats as well. I have to wonder because there were a couple other stores, one of which has some serious allegations against them um, that are still in business, that haven't been shut down. You know, no amount of, of having all of this stuff come out has, has stopped these businesses from continuing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder, are they getting death threats? I'd love to hear about it if anyone's listening and has been treated similarly because there's strength in numbers here. And, and, and yeah, and, and so, you know, it, when, when you posted about that, I was at an event um, with a couple of my friends for, we were doing um, our Soviet impression. And one of my friends is a Ukrainian Jew. And I looked at him and I said, you know, hey, what do you think about this? And he was like, that's absolutely a death threat. He's like, I don't know why anybody would call that hysterical. Number one, you don't know this person. They're purposefully keeping their identity a secret. So if you're going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, this just happens. I'm sorry. In your course of business, is this, you know, a normal thing for you to start having death threats? And 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 then he goes, he's like, no, absolutely. Like, you you cannot sit here and just dismiss that kind of a threat, unless you have intimate knowledge, of course, of who it was. But the right. thing is about that is, you know, we don't know. We don't know who it was. They're not coming forward. And because of that, you do not take those things lightly. And no law enforcement, anyone would say so, especially with the climate today, especially. You have no idea where people's minds are at anymore. You have no idea what might happen. Yeah. And you've got a family to worry about. Right. Which is also why I just want to request. I know that people aren't going to listen to me because they see what I'm posting about as a direct attack to them. So they feel justified is why I think they believe that they can be so abusive online. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I don't think it's right to attack someone personally to try and silence them. If you don't like what I'm saying, then just don't come on my page. Don't listen to my stuff. Stay away from it. You're not going to change my mind just by intimidating me 
and it's going to make things worse probably by doing so. Um, it's almost like if someone comes to my page and is harassing, then it's like they're volunteering for me to call them out and post about it because I, I think that's the last thing they probably want for their business too. But I think it's what they're doing is the point is to intimidate me and mm -hmm. that just makes me want to be louder. <laughs> and and I they're know not going to stop. The opposite. I, I mean, probably not. At, at the end of the day, they're not going to stop until your presence on the internet is completely wiped. <laughs> like, like yeah. that is that is their ultimate mo. So, and yeah, because because they have to silence all of the conversation. Yeah, and, and I've noticed. Me, I just wanted to. Oh, sorry. I was oh, going to no, say. Go I just go ahead. I just wanted to say one thing that touches into that is that I've noticed that. Um, people have been trying to report like everything I post calling it like harassment. It hasn't worked. Of um, they, of they've been down downvoting everything I do. So like they've been downvoting the podcast on Spotify, which I don't think it really does anything. It's just a way to like get out their aggression. Um, they've been doing it on my YouTube videos. So if anyone's listening and wants to like, you know, upvote it just to fight against that, like that's cool, but it's not that big of a deal. It's just, I've noticed that like, there's a lot of ways they've been kind of like lurking around and yeah. it seems almost obsessive and it doesn't yeah. seem healthy. And I think that like ruminating like that is probably where this death threat has come from. Like someone's just been ruminating and it's just not healthy to do that no, with your time. Again, I mean, we don't know these people. We don't know their mental state. We do not know what they are capable of. At the end of the day, I mean, now that a death threat is out there, everyone who is part of this and part of the conversation has to be aware that they could possibly receive similar treatment. And right. at the end of the day, when that sort of thing is on the table, again, there are a lot of people who will not come forward because this is exactly what they all said was what was keeping them from giving the full reviews, from giving a review in general, from doing mm -hmm. any of that sort of thing. And that's why what you're doing is so groundbreaking because you were willing to have that conversation. And this is the conversation that, you know, people have been saying behind closed doors for years. But now we're finally getting to that point where we do have a sense of, it, it's a general sense of people being unhappy, people being ultimately unhappy of being priced out of something that they initially could have taken part in. Um, or just in general, because, you know, if this is going to be a way that you dress, that is your everyday option, not just for, you know, grins and giggles, um, you are actually having your clothes taken away from you. Um, and, and, and people can say, well, there's other vintage out there. And there is, it's true. There's other vintage out there. And there are a lot of resellers who are very honest. There are a lot of resellers who will sell them to you at an honest price. And there are a lot of people mm -hmm. out there that make that their, their job. And, and I have had amazing encounters with these people. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I mean, we need to be sure to reiterate every single time we're part of this, that we are not against resellers. We are not against anyone who is out there making that honest living reselling the vintage or even as a side hustle. 
But I hate that we're living in an economy that we need a side hustle. I hate that because we can't cover our basic needs because our jobs don't pay for that. I hate that. And so because of that, and because this is oftentimes someone's hustle or the side hustle sort of thing, I think a lot of urgency gets put into that, you know, because at that time, you know, if they don't sell it for X, Y, Z, or maybe if they don't sell it for 200 bucks, they can't pay a bill. So of course, you know, when you have that sort of thing on the line, I can ultimately see why folks are asking prices that they're asking. However, I also know that there are folks out there that could come down in price and still not have their job or their status impacted. And there are a lot of folks out there who are following what these larger uh, priced items are. They have a close approximation to that item and they say, well, I'll come in maybe $150 less because then it looks like I'm the bargain option or then it looks like I'm being more reasonable when the initial price wasn't reasonable at all. And so there's a lot of ways people Mm -hmm. can play the market. Um, And a lot of that is on, on the sellers or on the buyer's end, understanding what it is that we're looking for and ultimately wondering about, you know, do I need it? I hate to say that, hate to say that because I am definitely a collector. I'm definitely somebody that wants to, you know, have a, a nicer collection of vintage. But at the end of the day, especially in this economy, the way that we actually ensure that we're doing things uh, ethically or, you know, any of the sort of like anti-capitalism logic that folks are sort of buying into at this point is to say, do we need it? And, and to be very cautious yeah. when we approach, you know, the, the, the people that we are, are looking to purchase from, because I mean, going back to, going back to the military aspect of it, it's outrageous out there. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone that will, will say that, that women's uniforms right now is, is anything but outrageous, especially if you've been in the hobby for a while. Um, but when we went to a vintage show Recently, it was about a couple of weeks ago or so, there was folks that had HBTs, like uh, herringbone twill, by the way, the work uniform. Goes back to working uniforms. Uh, but they had it listed for $225. These are hmm. World War II coveralls, HBT coveralls, that you can buy for 20 bucks from the right people. And they didn't even have the right stuff on them. They had like some like just random patches or whatnot. And then we looked over and the shirt next to it was again, 200 bucks. And that was an HBT covered uh, jacket basically. And Tony and I looked at each other and we were like, what is this? (laughs) What is this? That reminds me of when we were talking about the seersucker uniform that I did post about. Did you want to cover that at all? Yeah, and that that's Before actually a great kind of finish. Yeah, just to kind of, I guess, as our closing thoughts. Um, at the end, when you know that was kind of really what what brought me into this conversation was that seersucker that you posted about, and I, I have knowledge of this because I was watching that 
seersucker because there was another mm -hmm. seersucker that was posted, the, the uniform that I'm wearing, uh, right around the same time. Initially, that post had it, had it listed about $650. That's pretty high for this uniform. Mm -hmm. Then someone came in later on again with that, the same uniform. That's the second one that I was talking about beforehand. And they sold that for right around 500 or so. And once that uniform sold, that other listing shot up to like 1,200. And that was, that was, you know, what you posted. That was the, the, the screenshot that you posted about. And I sat yeah. there and I said, somebody's, somebody mistyped. Like, 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 like somebody cannot be seriously trying to sell this for that amount of money. Somebody, this is a typo, but no, it was not correct. Yeah, and the really, the, the sick thing about it was the only reason why I posted it and I'm glad I did because it brought us together is because I saw, I was following the auction of many other pieces from the auction website that it was purchased off of originally. And the only reason why I recognized it is because he used, he took the photos from the auction website and used it for his listing. And I remember I wanted to bid on that because it was only about, I can't remember if it was 150 or $250 for it. But my point is that's a very reasonable price for a uniform oh, absolutely. absolutely, compared to what he turned it for, especially one so rare. And I saw that and I immediately had to post because it was so relevant. And yeah. I'm just glad he kept the auction pictures because <laughs> yeah. that's what started this conversation. Well, and, and the funny part about that is, is that I bought from him before. Mm -hmm. And and the item that I purchased from him was, was a pretty reasonable price. Like, it, it, I don't even remember per se, you know, what it was for. But um, I just remember that I remember specifically that handle because of its uniqueness and I was like wow you know I don't yeah. remember this being you know the seller being anywhere you know off the cuff like that so so you know and 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 after you made that post I've noticed that it's back down to 650 and I don't know if that's because of the post or you know what it was but um I will say that my friend has a listing right now that's right around 450 seersucker it's not necessarily like the, the larger sizes per se, but that that is a, a great price for these, I would say. Granted, it's still a lot of money, uh, but I think I paid right around that yeah. for, for this as well. Um, and I would say that overall, you know, that that just shows that that my friend and I will I will say this because she is also a reseller. Um, my friend is very fair with her dealings, very fair. Um, I understand that she needs to, you know, make a living and whatnot, but she has items that she could potentially sell for six, seven, eight hundred dollars to the rest of us mere mortals who who do not have the, the access <laughs> to these garments that she does, because um, she makes it her her business. But she chooses to go not and to find it. Yeah, she chooses not to. She chooses not to. And and well, I respect I, that. that. I do respect that. It, it's it's very commendable on her on her end, um, and I have no problem with giving her all my money. <laughs> if it's not her, it's my tailor. Yeah. <laughs> oh um, yeah, I hear you. But yeah, and and you know, and that, no, I get that. That's the same thing with like the Adrian suit, you know, that that I told you about. Um. Oh yeah, could we talk about that really quick before we go? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so 
I was kind of bumping around the, the cities here as one does uh, when you're in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I encountered at a vintage <laughs> store in one of the wardrobes, a suit. I pulled this suit out and it was an Adrian suit. And my heart did a little flip-flop, little little butterfly there. <laughs> because, you know, of course I know what Adrian is. And mostly because I had seen the other bigger resellers selling these things for astronomical prices. Which, granted, I mean, an Adrian having the history behind it that it does, I mean, that's a little bit more justifiable than, you know, some a homemade workwear dress being sold for astronomical prices. Um, and so, right. you know, I... I looked at it and it was 75 bucks, 75 bucks. Mm. I, 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 my, my jaw dropped. I told my friends, hang on. <laughs> I smuggled my way into the back room. Cause they were like, go back there to try it on. It just fit, just fit just a little bit, little bit too tight. But I was like, okay, I'm bringing it home anyways. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, of course, like, you know, at, at that price, yes, I've been there. Um, I've been there. I, was, I get it. <laughs> I was like, I might never wear this, but to, to know that I have something like that in my collection for the price that it was, I mean, that right there spoke to the joy of what used to be when it was, you could go out and you could, you know, pick vintage up for a reasonable price from a store. And I, I mean, uh, now since I've been training for my marathon, I actually can fit into the suit. And so that's, that's where on my Instagram, um, you will see pictures of me in the suit with my, with my other friend who, who came to our first fur and feathers for our vintage group. Um, and man, uh, that was such a cool feeling. Are they, that was such a cool feeling. Are the photos on there now? Yeah. Yep. Yep. If you can go I, back and see the my... photos, like if I just go on. Yep. Okay. If you go I'll right back, I, I haven't it's posted a lot, a lot, but yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where it was like, that was, that was the joy of it. And that was a couple years ago now. Like that was, that was a, quite a few years ago now. Um, so I haven't had that sort of experience in a long time. I recently just had that experience because I got a dead stock forties, fifties day dress in a, a beautiful novelty print. For 60 bucks, because I, I happened to go to one of my favorite places. Um, and one of my favorite sellers was was on her game. <laughs> and, and again, that's just the sort of experience that you don't get anymore. And and it, it really, it it's used hard to, to be find. that way. It used to be that way. I, I remember because my husband will say right. that, you know, he's like, we used to find so much. And now, of course, because we live in the Midwest, there's this sort of thought that, you know, the vintage is cheaper out here. And so, of course, I've heard not only from other friends, but I've heard from the shop owners themselves that there are folks that are coming in from Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Dallas, places like that who are, are making it their thing to come and buy the vintage. And even if they buy it for 150 bucks, they still go back to wherever they are um, and charge you know, 100, 200, 300% more than they picked it up for here because they can. That just stresses me out because I know the importance of being able to find something locally and there's vintage lovers everywhere. There's not millions of us, but there's enough of us out there to where I think it's just, 
it's hard for me to justify people coming in and and buying up all the nice stuff just to bring it to their fancy shop for their elite audience and well you know where does that leave us well if you want to talk about sustainability too i mean sort of as that closing thought to it yeah buying vintage means that you're not buying into the capitalist industrial complex of sweatshops and things like that however you are still driving places you are still using a shipping cost and using shipping methods to you know send your things places you are still going into communities where there are folks here who could use those resources and you are taking them out of that community to put into your own community and whenever you say you know yeah well you know i i volunteer because there was there was a comment about that well i i volunteer with my time you know i'm part of the community that presupposes that there's people here in our community who don't because if, if you're going to say that you know you're going to charge me 500 dollars for a dress because you can put that money into your community ultimately if i bought that dress for 70 i could put that money into my community here so it's not as if it is right. a complete you know one way to redemption sort of sort of thing and 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 to put a level further to that um that is another reason i think that people can be sort of pushed to purchase these items at higher prices as well because there is absolutely a moral judgment behind buying fast fashion that is in our society nowadays and and i think that that is a something that drove a lot of folks to buy vintage in the first place. And I think that that is something that can potentially be weaponized um, to the favor of folks that want to charge higher prices. So I think that that's something that we also have to keep in mind as well when we talk about those sorts of arguments being made. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of things being thrown out to be used as distractions, I think, to make them and what they're doing look its best rather than focusing on the problem at hand, which is what we're discussing. And just like what you said about with volunteering, like that's nice and all, but that's not the point. And anybody can volunteer and what you're doing still needs to be examined. It still needs to be looked at because like, like what you said, you're taking stuff out of this community of some people that might actually enjoy and appreciate it. You just don't know. And maybe it's time to think about sustainability. If the well has run dry where you are and it might not be the most like sustainable line of work anymore to do something like that full time. If you can't find and source these things easily, And it's just so many people are getting into that now. There's resellers everywhere. There's videos everywhere of how to do it. There's a reseller university course on the internet that you pay like $500 for to learn how to flip things. And because of course somebody had to get into that aspect of it as well. (laughs) And, and yeah, it's like so messed up. The reason why it particularly sort of irks me in a lot of ways is because this is kind of the behavior that you see with MLMs. And the whole idea that, you know, you too can be a business owner, small business owner, there is a whole sort of, you know, market built around continuing to be a business owner or being your best business owner or things like that. And granted, you know, of course, vintage reselling is not MLMs. We can talk at length about that in a different podcast. Um, But there is that same sort of you know, if you're going to talk about this being a, a majority woman uh, 
a, a majority woman sort of market, so to speak, in both the resellers and the buyers, you know, you have to be cautious when you talk about things like misogyny, because ultimately asking a question about your business practice is not inherently misogynistic. However, throwing it back to like with the MLMs, MLMs teach their participants to throw that accusation at people who are trying to show them the, the pyramid that exists um, because you're attacking women if you're attacking my business because I am part of a female run business when, I mean, we can talk about the CEOs being male, but that's, again, a different podcast. Um, and, and, and that yeah. is a very common talking point that you will see um, told to these gals who are part of MLMs to sort of, you know, throw that out there and to stop the conversation, because that's ultimately what that's meant to do is to stop the conversation about MLMs. And that's ultimately what the conversation stopper is here. You know, I mean, what can you do logically when somebody says you're anti-women? Even when that's, that's not the well, case. And that's tr <laughs> it's truly not the case in your case. <laughs> Clearly not. I, that's why I don't feel like I need to really engage in an argument too much with them because like I don't I don't even see like the point. It's it's like a straw man argument basically. I never really said that. So what is anti-woman though is is silencing women who ask questions is telling women to that they're being hysterical or histrionic whenever they're concerned about something like all Personal these things safety? I think are much more yeah. misogynistic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then, then asking a question or criticizing a business practice that feels unfair. So that's just kind of the conclusion I, mean, I drew and why I can't even. <laughs> ultimately what you're asking for is transparency. Ultimately at the end of the day, you're asking why is it that it is the price it is, especially given X, Y, Z factor? And I feel like that is a very, right. very innocent thing to ask because, I mean, if you ask me that as, as your legal representation, I literally can give you a line item of what I did on a sheet of paper in your face. <laughs> and I have to do that. That is part of right. my job. And all... <laughs> And all professionals should be able to and prepared to do that. And yes. that's why I thought it was weird when, when Haley from Rewilding Vintage asked me, do you ask a mechanic to justify what they did for the price of servicing your car? And it's like, no, yes. they do that for you. I mean, like, done without like, even asking. So that was a horrible yeah. <laughs> Like, yes, I have actually gone under my car and personally looked at my car and have them walk through yeah. exactly what they did. I've even chalked the wheels. I mean, like, <laughs> girl, <Yeah. laughs> we exactly. want to talk about so, like, so it is of that. Well, and and also exactly too, the the car argument when they said, well, you know, if you can't buy a Maserati, don't don't look at a Maserati. You know, not everybody can afford a Maserati. <laughs> The, the Maserati actually has a demonstrable feature that you can point to that says this engine is this kind of engine. This wheel is this kind of wheel. This chassis is this kind of chassis. But you cannot do that if you're talking about that that garment. 
Okay. And the, the issue of the nightgown that you were talking about, yeah, um, you have it I, with you. I do. I do. <laughs> um, I, I, I grabbed it from the side, but apparently my video hasn't been working. So, but yeah, I mean, the nightgown here, if, if this is the item that someone is selling for $500 and I picked it up for 45 in Pittsburgh, I, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, please show me on this garment the demonstrable difference between the one that you're selling and this one, because I'm pretty sure they're going to be pretty standard and not between the whole, you know, Corolla versus Maserati difference, because I'm sorry, you're not going to see that level of difference in a piece of clothing from the same era from roughly the same place. Right. And, and another thing with the whole car argument, talking about the Maseratis, is we're not dealing in you or we're dealing in used garments. These aren't brand new, yes. like like a car you would just drive off the lot. This is something that's almost or over 100 years old in some cases, depending on the era. This is something someone else has worn and used. And yep. the fact that they don't really focus on that and they're kind of bringing it forward as this exclusive couture designer garment and comparing it to a brand new um, designer vehicle is so flawed to me. And part of the beauty of vintage is that someone else owned it. And I appreciate that. But I don't think that it's something that's commonly like exaggerated or talked about too much. Um, just like how handmade garments aren't really talked about too much because they want to create this brand. And one last thing before I, I let you talk is I wanted to say that I noticed with MLMs, um, there's kind of that I, I think it's similar sometimes looking at the people who are at the top and by at the top, I mean the people that post the glossy editorial like photos mm -hmm. and charge a lot of money, like $500 for a nightgown kind of thing. And they, there's a similarity with MLMs because on with MLMs, there are a couple people who are at the top who make a ton of money that are the example to people that are just getting into it who think, oh, wow, I can be like that too. I want to be like that. Yep. I want to make a ton of money and sit on my girl boss empire and be like a top, a top earning person at the top of this pyramid. And, and so many people are trying to emulate that now. And yes. I think that has a lot to do with the inflation that we're yes. seeing. And, so and it's about them. It is, it is so funny. You say that it is so funny. You say that because I was talking to one of the gals in my office and she's like, you realize this is all gaslight gatekeep girl boss, right? Like, she's like, are all these women like millennial women? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and, think a lot I'm of like, them yeah, are. Yeah, we are. We are all right around the same age. And she's like, so they are all part of the capitalist push of if you're not producing, you're not anything. And this whole idea of, you know, the, the Sheryl Sandberg lean in sort of mentality. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people are, are cognizant of that because it is so ingrained in us. It is so ingrained in our society. It is so ingrained that, you know, dog eat dog is the way to go. And that's, that's a capitalist mindset. That is inherently what makes this kind of industry part of, of, of the capitalist's agenda in a lot of ways, yes. because it is still capitalism. It's still, it's actually 
free market capitalism because I, I know that they said something about like supply and demand and whatnot mm -hmm. and I taught macroeconomics for two years in college um, so so if we want to have that supply and demand and how you can artificially inflate uh, supply or demand or if you if you want to talk about those sorts of factors I am down for giving us a, a, a lesson, I suppose, a one-on-one oh, on, on, on macroeconomics. But I mean, but when you talk about, you know, supply and demand, it's like, yeah, that's great. But you have to talk about it in terms of there is a natural supply and demand or there is the artificial demand and supply. Yeah. Um, and that is very influenced by a number of factors like a lot of the vintage, having warehouses, you can artificially inflate a market because you can artificially impact the supply. And and we've talked about that before. I mean, you've obviously mentioned that before, but it's like, yeah, it, it's not like we're sitting here and, and, you know, giving things to each other, exchanging things to each for each other. Um, there's, there is an element that does that. There are groups that do that. However, you don't see a lot of those really good pieces, like the good vintage. Uh, on there as much as it probably could be. And because of that, you know, you do get sort of that stratification of uh, buyers and sellers, and you get that stratification of wealth and that playing into that stratification of wealth of like you posted, there are a lot of people who are sitting there and saying, well, you can't pay my prices. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's like, well, you can't demonstrate why you need to demand that of me in the first place. Right. Um, it's like, so when you, when you have your Maserati that you can actually demonstrably show me is something that I couldn't pick up in some store in Pittsburgh uh, yeah. for, for much less, um, please get in contact with me. Um, right. I, I know. We can, we can have a conversation then. Exactly. And I'd love to maybe talk to you again or have you back sometime to talk about the... Yeah the economic part about everything and, and have you break that down too, because there's a lot to debunk that I feel like there's a couple key arguments that people keep like regurgitating that yes. are so easy to disprove. But again, we're low on time. Well, We've been here for a while. <laughs> we, we could well, probably be talking all day. Yeah. And, and I mean, and a lot of this is just a, a lot of folks are not going to see that because they have been so conditioned in one way or another. And, and again, tying it back to MLMs. That's, that's the same thing with MLMs as well. So, yeah. so, I mean, I, we can only put that information out there. We can only put what we know out there. We can only put this out for, you know, the, the jury of public opinion, essentially to, to weigh on in on this. Um, right. But of course I will do everything that I can to help keep educating folks to talk about my experiences. If folks want to know more about reenacting, please get in contact with me. Um, if folks want to talk more about involvement in that scene or just women in general in World War II, I am so open to talking um, and I, I will more than happily share what I know with you. Oh, that's, that's how it should be. And I feel the same way about what I know and what I have. I think that it's up to us to be stewards for yes. our hobbies and to help other people get into them and to understand so we can keep passing this joy on of learning. And I just, I appreciate you saying that. I'll probably put a link to your Instagram or something somewhere so people yeah. can access Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And, um, <laughs> I just, 
I just want to say before we leave that I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me. And I hope that it answered some questions. I hope everyone learned something new. And um, I just, I'm glad that you, that you're here. I'm, I'm so glad that you had me. I'm so glad that we've had this conversation. Um, I am so glad that you have opened this conversation for us to have too. So thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, everybody. We're going to close out now and have a great day. Thank Thanks you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.